Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. Hello, my name is Alan Wood and I'm your host. Thanks very much for listening. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers. They'll be sharing creative, inspiring ideas, effective practice and things they've learned along their journey. With that in mind, please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. You can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learning shared. The Learning Shared podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, in this episode, the eminent child and educational psychologist, Dr. Tina Ray, explores how we can resource a recovery curriculum. Through nurture approaches, Tina targets specific interventions which enable the teacher to support the child who is demonstrating anxiety, trauma and bereavement as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tina shares her wealth of experience and expertise through a presentation and talk that she has prepared especially for this episode. There's a link to a video of Tina's presentation on the Recovery Curriculum website at www.recoverycurriculum.org and if you select episode 8 you'll be able to watch and listen to the slideshow. We've also listed links to the various resources that Tina refers to in the presentation and there's also links to the free video-based CPD sessions that Tina has recorded and created during May and June. These, These are highly recommended. So, Professor Barry Carpenter introduces Dr. Tina Ray. Welcome to another in the podcast series for the recovery curriculum. We're exploring the implementation of the concept of recovery. How do we support, aid healing, and bring our children back to their rightful status as efficient and effective learners? That process of from reconnection to recovery and through to resilience. Nobody better to help us to realize that in very practical ways than our guest for this podcast, Dr. Tina Ray. An eminent child and educational psychologist, Tina has an illustrious career. Many years a teacher, so she knows what it's like to be at the chalk face. And then hugely successful, both as a practicing psychologist and in the field of academia, with many, many publications to her name. She is the most prolific creator of resources. A rare person who can not only articulate the, the thinking behind a particular concept but can see how you would teach it in a classroom. She has done more to bring psychology 
alive in people's classrooms and everyday practice than anyone else I know. Tina is going to speak to you this afternoon about resourcing recovery through nurture, a concept we all need to be more acquainted with. Tina has done a lot of her resource design and preparation through Nurture UK, an organization to which she's hugely committed. Those of you that have ever seen any of the boxes that she's created, the bereavement box, the sensory box, etc., all of which will be referred to this afternoon, know that they are truly fantastic pieces of work that are so practical in our classrooms. Um, she also publishes widely with Hinton House. So I'm very pleased to announce that Hinton House will be offering you 10% discount for three weeks from the date that this podcast is first released. Uh, and when you uh, try to purchase, do please mention that. And all of the proceeds from Tina's publications for the coming 12 months, she is donating to Nurture UK, which is uh, a charity. Without further ado, may I welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Tina Ray. Thank you very much, Barry. It's really, really wonderful to be doing this for you. And um, I hope that people are going to find this very useful today. Uh, nurture is something that I've been passionate about for, I would suggest, probably ooh, the last 25 years. Um, I've been in education for over 35 years. So for me, um, understanding and knowing how to nurture and foster the well-being and mental health of our children has always been paramount. And I think now, given the current crisis, the pandemic that we're in, um, I can see that this is going to actually take precedence, in my view, and should do quite rightly. We need to actually ensure safety first, and this has to be done through nurture. So, as Barry said, um, I began as a teacher. Um, I've been uh, in education. I, I tried to work it out this morning for about 36 years now. Um, so, in essence, I probably have spent... Um, over half my life, over half my life in the field of education and psychology. But interestingly, as Barry said, I didn't train to be a psychologist until I was 40. Um, um, because basically, I loved teaching, but I became more and more interested in emotional well-being, mental health. And I found that that was becoming such a passion that I really wanted to do something that would make a difference. And training to be a psychologist seemed to be the right route. What I didn't realize at the time was, of course, that um, psychologists at that point in time tended to spend much of their time um, assessing children, not actually working with them, dealing with them therapeutically and supporting them with their well-being. So I soon became a specialist DP um, because actually I knew that this was something that I didn't want to miss out on. And I also felt that there was an awful lot that we could do um, on a practical level to give the psychology away, to make sure that practitioners on the ground actually had access to this stuff, which is not rocket science. Um, it's not something that you have to be a psychology to use and manipulate and, and foster in, in children, young people or yourselves. It's basically common sense, much of the stuff I'm going to talk about today. And I really, really strongly feel that we need to actually move away from this myth that psychology is something to be revered. It's something to be treasured, but it's something that we can all use and apply, regardless of where we fall within the continuum of or hierarchy in a school context. So um, Nurture UK, a passion of mine, nurturing children children, young people. I was on their board for a few years um, 
And I still really highly rate and value this particular charity and the work that they do because I know what a difference it makes to our most vulnerable children and young people. But I also know that the whole concept of nurture is something that every single child that I meet needs needs on a daily basis so you can find lots of my publications there and also of course with Hinton House and I'm going to make reference to some of them unashamedly today because one of the key purposes of this presentation is to flag up the fact that we do not need to reinvent the wheel we're under enough stress at the moment without having to think that we need to find resources on this on that how, how we're going to transition children back and make sure that we nurture them appropriately if we actually just do a little bit of research we'll find that most of the stuff we need is out there people like me have been creating wonderful i think evidence-based resources for a long long time now so you know, that this is something I think needs to be flagged up in schools, that you don't have to recreate this wheel. And it's really pertinent now. Um, whilst we've been going through this period of lockdown, I've been trying my hardest to get up every day and go for a walk first thing at half seven in the morning. And I've managed it apart from one day where it's very rainy. Um, but I'm a great observer of people and I listen to conversations. One thing about being a psychologist, it, it gives you permission to be nosy. So um, one of the, the conversations I ever heard that, that really just kind of stopped me in my tracks was a little boy with his mum. There were two brothers with, with the mum walking up the hill as I was going down. So I slowed up considerably because when I, I heard him say to his mummy, mummy, why do you have to go to work? I don't want you to go. I'm really worried you're going to get the virus. And she said, I've got to go in. I'm an essential worker. I've got to be there. And he said, but you might die. And she was great. I waited, actually. I paused to breathe for a minute because I thought, what is she going to say to him, this mum? And she was so calm in her response. So it's obviously practice. She's thought about this. She's a key worker. She knows what she's dealing with every day. And she said, we'll all die someday, darling, but I'm, I'm being careful, so you mustn't worry. But he responded, but I feel sick when you go. You might not come back. I think we should all just stay at home. It's safer. We can't be safe anywhere else. And it struck me like a thunderbolt, really, that, you know, this was a so-called, on the, on the surface, the lovely, nice, loving mummy, clearly a secure home, clearly people that are used to interacting with each other. And this child's level of anxiety was through the roof. And I've had lots of debates with people about over-pathologizing and not suggesting that every child is, is experiencing this level of stress. But I am kind of veering down the line of thinking that actually the majority of our children, regardless of background, regardless of any mental health, pre-existing pre conditions, um, is going to feel anxious. They're going to feel worried. They're being exposed to stuff, even subliminally from the media around the, the virus, what is happening, going back to school, how it's going to be different, etc. And he's worried. He's really, really worried. He knows people are dying from this virus, so he doesn't want his mum to die. So there are real issues here about separation anxiety, about anxiety about going into school and the fear factor about leaving his mum clearly. Um, the COVID-19 effects, we know that the recent survey from Young Minds it was published in March 2020 this year. 
um, was, was actually doing a survey of 2,000 young people with existing conditions. And what they found was that um, there, there was a really significant and profound effect on the children and young people who have existing, pre-existing mental health conditions. So they reported 83% of them an increase in anxiety, problems with sleep, panic attacks, and these frequent urges to self-harm. So these are the children and young people that we have to be so alert for and make sure that on entry transition back into school now, they're the ones that we're flagging up to ensure that they do have the bespoke individualised therapeutic approaches that they're going to need because they will need them. Conversely, the COPEX space study um, conducted at the University of Oxford showed us that one fifth of children do not now feel safe to leave their homes, like the little boy that I just gave you in the example there. But you know, when we think about this logically, conversely, that would suggest that four-fifths of children actually feel okay. So there is a, an issue, slight issue here, I think, of balance. And we've got to be thinking that those children feel okay. And some of them are actually dying to get back to school. They really want to go and see their teachers. They want to meet their friends, even if it's in a small bubble. They're okay. They're resilient enough to be able to cope with the new normal. Um, and I think we, we, we need to flag that up. However, I still do think that those children will also be experiencing higher levels of worry and anxiety and stress. And they'll, they'll have many more concerns and more questions that they need answering. Um, I think the memories of lockdown are something that we are going to be celebrating, talking about, reflecting on for some time. And that needs to happen as part of any recovery process. But again, we need to factor in here that for some of our children, they won't have been quite as traumatic. Some of the kids that I've spoken to recently who live nearby here have had some lovely times. They've enjoyed being at home with mums who've not been particularly stressed. And I say mums because, dare I say it, a lot of the um, teaching has been conducted, I'm afraid, by the mothers. There has been a gender imbalance. It was reported in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago. It's quite interesting. But they've had some nice times. They've done some lovely creative things. They've had some really relaxed moments doing fun things with their parents and carers that maybe they would not have had time from before to do before. And they've slowed down. They've been able to interact, to engage and just to chill out. There's been lots of really lovely moments of joy and, and shared experiences. Um, for some of them on the ASD continuum in particular, they have never felt so secure, so well-balanced, so able to self-regulate because they've been out of a context that they find stressful on a daily basis. So there's something else that needs to be factored in here when we're talking about recovery and resilience, because for some of our children, the transition back will be difficult, not because of a bad experience of lockdown, but because it's been lovely. And actually going back to school is something that they're a bit frightened of because it's going back to stuff that was stressful before. So I think we have to be really flexible in our thinking I am never, ever going to under underestimate the fact that some of the children, and particularly those that I currently have connections with, have had ongoing abuse um, in this period of lockdown. And these are the children that we are really, really concerned about and that will need to have an, an extremely bespoke context and approach when they get back into school. And I think most school leaders and most practitioners, those in the pastoral teams, the, well, the mental health leads in schools, that you'll know who these kids are and you know that you're going to have to go the extra mile and that the nurture on that nurture continuum is going to have to be at the top end of the scale for these kids. Um, so 
there is an increased level of stress and anxiety, in my view. Um, we must maintain this this kind of mantra, I suppose, that we mustn't pathologise. But because for the majority, four fifths of our kids are going to feel a little bit stressed, a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious. They're going to need more help with that, and they're going to need a nurturing, trauma-informed context. All of them, regardless of any kind of pre-existing condition. So there's going to be this need to listen, to empathise, and ensure that context for every single child. With a bespoke element for those that are going to need additional nurture. Um, when I'm thinking about trauma, because I think for some of our children this is uh, equated to, equating to a, a traumatic experience. I think um, we need to actually make sure that we've understood our own, that we've worked through them, we've reflected on our feelings and reactions, and that we can help the child. We can co-regulate with them. And I think this is essential. We now know so much more about the neuroscience, how the brain works, how this impacts on children's behaviour, um, their memory, their working memory, etc. when they are in flight-fight mode um, all the time. So co-regulation is going to be essential, but we can only do this as adults if we are self-regulated ourselves. So I think there is something about nurture for us as a staff, as staff teams, as individuals. Unregulated, dysregulated adults cannot regulate unregulated, dysregulated children. We know that. It's a fact. There's, there's absolutely no argument about it. So we need to actually really make sure that we are regulated. We know how to do that. We know how to then co-regulate our children effectively. Not taking any behaviour personally, because we know also anxious behaviour can very often look like rudeness or disobedience, when we, and we clearly know it's not. So it's something to keep in mind. So being you know, sure that we, we are not shaming those children. We're really engaging as well with their family members and carers and taking the time to do that. This is going to be more important than ever, that the messages between home and school are very clear, very consistent and very supportive. So the need for nurture... Developmental trauma, we know that kids will develop a range of really unhealthy strategies, which they believe are going to keep them safe. So this is where the behaviour, which, which very often will look like um, uh, attachment difficulty type behaviour, will be very challenging to some of us as adults. But they're functioning from that primitive brain for much of the time and they're stuck there. Um, and actually, even when they are taken into a safe environment, they cannot actually just switch this off, okay? It's like the, the TV going on full blast nonstop. So carers and teachers need to start at the bottom and develop what I call safety first. I cannot learn, I cannot engage in anything cognitively if I have been experiencing or am experiencing this hypervigilant emotional hijack. So we need to ensure that nature is what, nurture, sorry, is what actually comes first. So the key task, I think, in, in terms of developing a recovery curriculum is to make sure that it is trauma-informed, it is based upon nurturing principles, and it puts the well-being first of both the children and those who are supporting them in the school context. And creating that trauma-informed classroom is essentially what we would call creating a safe base. And I've got these lovely six headings from the wonderful Dr. Chris Moore. So do look at his work. Um, he's um, on Twitter a great deal and he's hugely informative and he's always sharing his knowledge. I love people like him. Um, he talks about these six key elements and this is how I framed the rest of this presentation around these elements. Those of belonging, 
feeling part, feeling connected with people, even if we are physically not connected anymore in the sense that we can't have a cuddle, we can't put our arms around each other, we can't touch, we can feel as though we are belonging um, emotionally. Predictability, so ensuring those routines are very, very clear. Organisation, making it very explicit. Regulation, as I just said earlier, the co-regulation. Differentiation, again, for individual children. Some will need more nurture than others. And relationships. Relationships are absolutely key here. Those relationships that are really, really committed, authentic, nurturing, um, and I would say compassionate. That word compassion has been ringing in my ears for many weeks now. So the first one belonging, those personalized greetings that we give to children when they come in, not underestimating these. Let's make even more time for those. We do this in nurture. We do this in the nurture group, showing trust, actually giving children that level of responsibility. And also um, visual images in classes, entrances, corridors of happy learning times and successes and memories. And I think that's really, really important. There is a time and a place for the COVID memories, the lockdown memories, where we need to share things that weren't quite so good. And for some of our kids, they're going to need to be shared confidentially with a, a key adult because we do not want to re-traumatise other children and we don't want to re-traumatise those children. I think there needs to be something of actually recognising the difficulties but celebrating the lovely happy times. And just when I walk into a school, like my local high school here, the Abbey School, so proud. I walk in and it is just emblazoned the whole entrance hall with pictures of these wonderful kids doing fantastic work, doing wonderful educational trips, being successful. But most of all, I keep seeing smiling people. So it's actually re-emphasizing, reliving wonderful past experiences, getting those memories back again in those associations with happy times. And we need a lot more of this happiness back. So that's a really, really important factor. Um, the second, um, number two, predictability. I think, again, we would be doing this with our children in the nurture group. We'd be doing this with our children on the ASD continuum. We need to now do this with all our kids because they're going to be more vigilant, hypervigilant. They're going to be more anxious. So communicating those activities very, very clearly, using visuals, using visual timetables. Countdowns to transitions, warnings, pre-warnings, reassurance. Again, should it needs to become part and parcel of what we do naturally in our natural interactions with the kids. Um, using that chill out preferred activities after less preferred learning tasks. It's not a reward. Let's move away from this notion that it's a reward for bad behavior. This is a, necess a necess necessity for someone who is hypervigilant. I've done my bit of work, but actually I really now need to just actually self-soothe in, 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 in a certain way. And that means that I've got to engage in, in something that makes me feel happier and more content and more safe. Music, song, visual prompts to aid tidying routines really does help with earlier years and setting clear orders. So those transitions when we're queuing, when we're moving around, whatever we're doing, that it's ordered, it's the same. And I think the key here has got to be about us showing empathy, being empathic, realising that this level of predictability is needed. Uh, one of the resources that's going to be very useful, I think, in, in this area is this transition toolbox from Nurture UK. And I think this is absolutely vital here, that there's a wealth, a plethora of resources in here. It was designed originally for transition from year, year six to year seven. 
But actually, the resources in it are so relevant now, I think, to children transitioning back into school in this very gradual way, because I know it's, it's going to take many months, uh, I, I actually think, in reality, to get kids in full time. And I don't know how that's going to happen. I think there's going to be a hybrid kind of situation going on for a bit. But please have a look at this. It's all in there, lots and lots of things. And it's, it's, it's not just about transition. It's about actually preparing you emotionally. So teaching skills of mindfulness, self-regulation, self-soothing, visualisation, teaching how to get organised, teaching how to, to problem solve and ask the right questions of the right people, how to get help. Um, one of the um, cards in the box um, actually presents a pupil passport. And we've always used these for, particularly for children with special educational needs transferring. But I think now that we need to be thinking about pupil passports for all our kids coming back in. And this might be part of a project that they create their own pupil passport. They highlight the things that they found difficult in lockdown, that they found wonderful, that they would like help with, the things that they're worried about going back to school, okay, and who they need or would like to have some help from. So I think it's about empowering the children because we know that autonomy, levels of autonomy, if they're increased, then your anxiety decreases. So we need to give this to the children a wee bit more here. Factor three in this trauma-sensitive classroom um, is around organisation. So the consistency of the seating. And we know classrooms aren't going to look quite like this now you will probably have two children, you'll have eight to six children in a pod. But I think we've got to be very clear about the organisation. It makes me feel secure. And if my tasks are organised in small steps, again, if I'm anxious, if my task is organised in a hierarchy, one, two, three, four, this is what you do first, second, third, fourth, then I know that I'm going to be able to manage each element of that task. I won't get overwhelmed. We're going to find that some of our children who weren't so anxious before and weren't overwhelmed by a task may well be. And this is where the differentiation is going to come in. These are the children that will now need this level of differentiation they probably didn't need before. So very, very clear. The equipment list at the start of activities is something I've always done with my ASD children, young people. Um, I think many of our kids are always are all going to need this now. They've been out of school for a while. So this is really, really important. They get back into that level of routine here. The need to understand trauma and anxiety and how that impacts on children cognitively, the neuroscience behind this, and the fact that this emotional hijack that goes on does stop us from having what I would call an effective working memory. We don't remember what the teachers just said. We might remember the last little bit of the instruction. We might present as anxious, and, and if we do, then we might present as quite aggressive because we'll feel short-tempered, we'll feel embarrassed, we'll feel um, as if we just can't manage anything, so we'll feel insecure. We can't do that task anymore. We need to really, really gain a deeper understanding of this. So, I'm going to point you to the Wellbeing Toolkit for Mental Health Leads, which has modules on trauma and anxiety, adverse childhood experiences, grief and loss. It has a, um, a very good um, section on CBT approaches, mindfulness approaches, stress and anxiety management. And I really would... Um, present this to you as, as something for ongoing CPD, 20 modules in here. Because at this time, I think there's going to be an issue around funding for this kind of support for staff teams. And as much as we possibly can, we need to share resources that are really user-friendly, effective, evidence-based, but also 
hugely cost effective. And this is once you've got it, you can use it and you can use it in, a, in any ways really to train your staff in smaller groups or in whole um, school teams. That, that's obviously down to you, but it does actually give you the information you need, I think. Uh, factor four here is regulation. If we're going to have a nurturing context that, that aids and the healing and recovery process, we need to ensure that our children feel regulated, that they can learn to self-regulate, right, regulate. they can actually increase their skills in this area, as can we. So there is this notion of discussing emotions regularly, normalising that as part of the discussion. Okay, It's not self-obsessed to talk about how I feel. Um, to be curious, not furious. And that sounds a, a wee bit cheesy, but I think it's important, you know, this whole notion about, well, I'm interested in how you're feeling. You know, what, what is it that's going on at the moment for you? As opposed to, look, you shouldn't be so angry, you know, this dismissal of a child. So we need to make sure we're factoring that in. Um, using puppets okay as a tool where appropriate with young, younger ones and sensory diets. So making sure that the grounding, deep breathing, the messy play, etc., is incorporated in. Now, some people might be thinking at this point, oh my goodness, you know, that's, this sounds so early years. Um, yeah, it does. But just remember when children have experienced trauma or they're really, really anxious, their behavior and their cognitive abilities will regress and they will revert back to a much younger age cognitively and emotionally. So we need to ensure that this stuff is in there for our children who need it. And calm corners and calm boxes, absolutely key to this. Um, I know that this is an issue um, because actually, ooh, what, how I dare I say it, I know that with, with the, the kind of whole factor about keeping things clean, etc., we probably can't have the tent in the corner anymore where the little ones go to or the special space. But we can actually make sure that children take calming objects and boxes into school in order to actually self-regulate. They can have something around their necks. They can have their little calm objects within that little pouch. And that can be sanitized every morning before they leave the home, etc. Now, there'll be different rules, I know, in, in different local authorities. But I mean, I should imagine there will be a huge amount of consistency. But I'm flagging this up because I think these transitional objects are very important. And again, just to reinforce, if we're going to talk about regulation and being um, ensuring that children are able to regulate, don't forget this notion. The key is that we need to be self-regulated ourselves first. Again, lots of resources that you can access to teach about emotions, feelings, emotional literacy, uh, building self-esteem and teaching, the, uh, teaching children the the anger management skills, I suppose we used to call it anger management a lot, but I, I would call it um, self-regulation now. But these are really useful resources. They're programs, there's an evidence base for all of them. We have been using these for many years and they are currently available. So just to flag those up, and this is this crosses the whole age span. So the anger alphabet obviously is for early years and then going through to emotional literacy with teenagers. And the calm box... Again, I do this a lot with my, my children, young people, because it's a way of actually giving them that ability, giving them the autonomy again so that they can use this for themselves. They can realize themselves when they begin to understand physiologically what's happening in their bodies when they get anxious and they can learn how to make use of this. Very often I will use the five senses, see, hear, feel, smell, taste, put something in this little box that is, is um, indicative of those things. So something special that I want to smell that calms me down, lavender, something that I want to touch or hold or stroke that also helps to calm me so very much a, a common sense approach I think and again mindfulness um, 
I'd flag up this essential guide because, again, this has resources, activities for younger children, for teenagers and for whole groups that you can introduce safely. Um, so in, in the one little book, I think it's, it's a, there's a wealth of, of knowledge um, and activities. I just want to flag up one thing about mindfulness, and that is that you, have, you do have to be a wee bit careful here. I have got children with ASD and worked with in the past who would say that they don't like mindfulness because actually it gives them sort of, uh, it actually, I suppose, re-traumatizes them to some extent um, because they basically they feel as if they can't do it. They're in a classroom. Everyone else seems to be being mindful and able to do it and to actually focus on the train track, their thoughts going into the train carriages, etc. And they say they can't do it. So that just reinforces the fact that they've got this increased level of anxiety they may be better at doing it individually or in a one-to-one context so we just need to be careful as with any kind of tool or intervention um, one size does not fit all there are lots of things that are very useful to many of us but we do have to actually make sure that it is bespoke to individual children young people so they develop their own well-being toolkit or toolbox um, for me teaching effective thinking is key here and one of the things that does have to form part of the recovery curriculum is this refocusing on using key tools and strategies from cognitive behaviour therapy. I can't em- emphasise this enough. Part of that anxiety cycle, that kind of horrible cyclical thing that we can't get off, is this inability to dispute and intercept those original initial negative automatic thoughts or fears or anxieties that children have. So they think something causes the feelings and that generates the anxiety behaviours, which very often will be about school phobia, about not doing something in the classroom because they fear something will happen that's bad or they have a social phobia or they have a negative thought about something cognitively that they can't do, such as the writing, the sums, etc. So actually teaching them how to engage in effective thinking. I call it effective thinking. I think it's really, really important. It's not this about changing a, a negative to a positive. It's about changing something that's unhelpful to a child into something more constructive. So please have a look at the, the guide to, um, and also the building positive thinking habits and bouncing back and coping with change. I'm flagging both of these publications up. I have not looked at bouncing back and coping with change for a while. And it's quite interesting because I flicked through it the other day and realized that actually this is one of the ones that I think now is the seminal for um, children actually returning, transitioning back into school because it is about bouncing back and beginning to support them in that resilience journey, developing more of the resilience that they're going to need. And again, another one for teenagers here, evidence-based strategies. Um, and I've written this with the wonderful Dr. Jodie Walsh and Dr. Joe Wood, um, my co-authors in many publications. They were both students at um, University of East London when I was there, uh, one of their professional tutors, and, and they are absolutely fabulous young psychologists. Um, so self-regulation here, um, de- developing and teaching these coping skills is absolutely key. And again, the Wellbeing Toolkit for Teens from Nurture UK, um, to which um, I think there are about 12, 13 of my former students who contributed to this. And the reason why I am so engaged with um, using younger psychologists with, with my work and publications is because, you know, 
Um, they're much more au fait with all the stuff that young people know about and are interested in, and they're much better than me at the IT, just to flag that up, you know. I think that's important. But also their awareness of what's going on with children and young people. Um, I think it's lovely when people are less removed than some of us who are a wee bit older. Uh, understanding and preventing self-harm. We know um, the Young Minds research showed us that some of the children who were already engaging in self-harm said that during the lockdown they have experienced a greater urge and engaged in more self-harming behaviour. So there's going to be a real issue here, I think, for some of our children coming back into school that we need to ensure the nurture, level of nurture, actually is fit for purpose for them and is much more bespoke. This programme is intended to be delivered to the young people themselves um, at the um, secondary level. Um, and lots of people say to me when I talk about this, oh my goodness, isn't this going to actually trigger off lots and lots of children self-harming? No, it's not. Who are they going to talk to if they are engaging in these behaviours? It's usually their 12, 13-year-old friend. So for me... Knowledge is power here, and we need to teach them about how to talk to their friends, who to go to for help, who is the right person in school, mm. what should they do with this information and this knowledge, rather than get overwhelmed by it. And also just think they're coming back in, they're already stressed themselves. And if their friend who has previously been self-harming has been self-harming more during the lockdown, then they're going to have to actually cope with that on some level. So they need to know what the structure is in school, where to get that help from, but also the right and the wrong things to say and also how to support their friend in this process of gaining more of an ability to think more effectively, helping them gently to challenge their negative underlying assumptions and thoughts. So I, I do, I would put, really um, present this as something of great value actually at this time. And of course, sadly, um, some of our children will have experienced a bereavement um, many of us have during this period, um, and I think that I, I cannot underestimate the value of the bereavement box, um, supporting children through grief and loss in the nurture group. And actually, it's not just in the nurture group. I think this box is actually something that everyone in school should know about um, because we're going to have children who will need to talk, who will need to process, and they will not have access to a therapeutic input for this. Some of them will, some of them won't. Some of them will just want to actually talk about how they feel. And given these cards, give you a safe, it's a bit like working with puppets. They give you a safe means by which to do this because they build on the child's ideas and they can be entirely child-led. So for me, it's much, much safer. Um, they incorporate lots of things around remembering um, and getting lovely ideas around um, feelings and how I'm feeling now and the whole process of experiencing grief and loss. Um, and there are lots of things around actually making lovely memory um, boxes, ideas, memory jars, etc., etc., and holding memorials. Um, and these are grief masks in the top right-hand corner here. And, of course, I need to flag up sources of support because it's essential, I think, at this time during recovery that the children who need this kind of bespoke level of support for bereavement counselling actually get it. We need to be vigilant around this. The box itself has 60 cards. Um, um, Barry's always kind of talking about how beautifully laminated they are. <laughs> so it's actually quite important because you can wipe them down. So we're talking about disinfecting. You can do this. Um, but 
basically three sections, understanding, which includes this whole idea about understanding the nature of death, the fact that, you know, it's, it's permanent, the grieving process and how that works. We talk about life cycles and the feelings and behaviours that we may, um, that may be generated as a result of losing somebody that we love. So managing these, using the effective support systems that we have and developing the stress and anger management skills and, and the ability to express emotions appropriately in a safe way. Remembering, again, lots of ideas about um, journaling, making memory books and mobiles, writing letters, etc. Um, and celebrating. So, again, memorial gardens, balloon ceremony, portraits, poems and pictures, etc. And, of course, we need to actually ins- ensure that this is part of the recovery curriculum from, for all of us, whether or not we have mm. experienced a bereavement. Because, in essence, there is a level of bereavement that all our children will have been experiencing at this time. And that's the bereavement of their liberty. It's the bereavement of them actually being with their friends, loving their friends, jumping around with them outside, playing with them. The bereavement of, you know, not being with that lovely teacher that they adored etc so I think we mustn't underestimate that and also just um, flagging up that um, you know there are going to be adults that you know people like you listening to this who um, are involved in this whole grieving process so there needs to be an effective support plan for you and opportunities to um, acknowledge your own losses because you are going to re-experience sad memories and you need to ensure that you've got that time and space to talk and there needs to be um, real compassion here again around ensuring that staff are nurtured they have this time in the space to really talk about their issues when they need to in the right way in the right place but also ensuring that they have the time and the space to also ensure that they're looking after themselves that self-care routines are are maintained and so I I think there's something about ensuring that we've got talking partners in school and that we're observant and caring and nurturing of each other and also not condemnatory if someone seems to need more than others. And please, this is really essential. This is what nurture is all about. I'm actually um, very passionate that we don't ever demonize the person who needs more nurture. We should be doing quite the opposite. So, I, I th- And I think you know, this is the way that we support going forward. One good thing that will have come out of this whole pandemic, in my view, is this focus on what we do for other people, how we nurture and love the people around us. And and that has to be a positive. So number five, um, the key factor in the trauma-sensitive classroom has got to be around differentiation. So we know that your working memory is compromised if you are anxious or or you've experienced trauma. Um, So we need to keep things very simple, reducing the memory and process demands on our children, giving them extra time We will have slowed down a lot during this lockdown. We will not be able to process in the same way, all of us, regardless of any mental health difficulties that were pre-existing for us. So structures and frameworks for writing tasks, keywords, the ABC, etc., ensuring a level of choice and autonomy as well, limited choice. Children don't need too much choice, we know that. They need limited choice so that they feel safe, but there has to be some level of choice here. And key for us here is that in order to do this effectively, we have to be organised. That differentiation as well, just flagging up some of our ASD children, is going to be more significant. I'm thinking particularly, I have a, a colleague whose son has been extremely happy at home and and he really is genuinely dreading going back to school because he's going to have to face lots of things that he finds extremely uncomfortable and difficult to manage. 
notwithstanding wonderful teachers who are really trying hard and have been all the way through, but it's going to be harder for him because he's got used to a totally different context. So just to flag this up, and I'm flagging up the ASD Girls Wellbeing Toolkit because I think just to say there are evidence-based interventions out there that we can use and maybe it's time to think about engaging in something like this for smaller groups of children as opposed to thinking about a purely academic catch-up phase. I really, really can't emphasise enough the need to move away from that narrative. Let's catch up with each other, not with the academic, okay? So just to flag that up. The sixth factor here is around relationship connectedness relationships, ensuring that comfortable proximity. Sadly, we can't do the hugging anymore, which could be so difficult for some of us. But modelling the social skills, teaching conflict management and building their strengths, their personal strengths and interests can still be done. And this is what we would do in nurture, in the nurture group, in a nurturing approach. And the key to this ultimately always, from my perspective, is to be kind. So that kindness, the kindness curriculum. Um, we can do this by developing our positive psychology approaches and our curriculum for kindness. So if you're interested in that, that's one publication from Hinton House. And there's also the Motivational Minutes box. Again, positive psychology, 60 cards again, different things that we can do to build the levels of happiness and resilience and well-being in our children through positive psychology. Um, we know your brain grows like a muscle and we know from the neuroscience that a lot of this damage can be repaired through um, the nurture and those lovely connected relationships we make with key adults who support us. So I think this is a really, really hopeful message. So I think we should be engaging now in journaling, getting kids to write their experiences, record them, draw them, do it through art, through music gratitude to all the wonderful things that happened, the things that went well. We need to ensure they have exercise. We need to ensure they're doing things for others and they're savouring, and this is really, really important, the happy memories and building those and celebrating those. I always say to people, surround yourself with three Ps, photos, plants and pets. Um, so I know the difficulty with the school dog is going to be enormous now, but I think it's really, really important. Those lovely memories of the good things, the happy times, we can have those again and we're going to have them from now on. We, we're going to make that happen for ourselves and for each other. I also think the three kind acts, three good things. This is part of every single school day. Three good things that I remember at the end of the day that I'm going to tell my mum or my dad or my carer. Three lovely things that happened and three things that I can do tomorrow that are kindness acts for other people. I do planned acts of kindness. I actually think random acts are great, but um, I think it's really lovely if we plan these into our day just as a matter of routine. Forgiveness, meditation, and rituals, all of this stuff, positive psychology actually helps to engender greater levels of happiness, we know this, and positive relationships. I always tongue-in-cheek say no blood suckers. It's really difficult sometimes, but I think this is one of the key things, the elements to a life of meaning and happiness is that you surround yourself with people who reflect those things, who nurture you and love you and make you feel good, and likewise, you return that in kind to them. And I think this is absolutely vital for our children now. So think about after this, you know, presentation clearly, but what would you do from this list of positive psychology activities to build that resilience on the road to recovery? So 
In terms of trauma recovery, there are four key steps. Um, and this comes from a range of different psychologists. I haven't put all the references in because there are far too many of them, but I've done a huge amount of reading uh, around this in the last couple of weeks. Um, three key steps are that we need to learn more effectively to self-regulate. We need to keep moving. We need to engage in physical activity. We need to learn how to more effectively use our stress management strategies and keep revisiting them and honing them. And the key one here is not to isolate. If we've experienced trauma or anxiety, there's a tendency for many of us to withdraw. And we know that connections help build our resilience and aid that process of recovery. So those four key steps. And I think essentially for us in doing that and making sure that we really engage with children so that they can recover um, we need to be thinking about how we calm them, what kind of narratives that we use. And I think they need to hear these messages. I'm anxious, I'm getting distressed. I can feel that buildup, that emotional buildup of arousal here within myself physiologically. I need to feel safe. So I'm going to be saying to that child, I'm here for you. I'm staying here. You're going to be okay. It's all right. I'm with you. I'm right next to you. I might not be able to put my arm around you, but I'm here and I'm using my calm voice and you know it's okay because I'm not going anywhere. And physiology here, explaining this, they need to understand what's happening in their body. You know what? This is going to pass in a bit. Your body's responding in an anxious way. That's what you're feeling. Give it a minute or two. It's going to pass. You've been through it before. You can do it again. And then validation, not patronizing, but being very, very clear about this. That must be so hard for you. I'm so sorry it's making you feel nervous. It sounds really, really difficult. Do you want to talk it through? It's not silly that you feel like this. It really matters. Okay. I know it's not over the top. You're not being silly. I'm not dismissing you. I can see you worried. How can I help you right now at this moment? What I'm really doing there is engaging in the process of emotion coaching. And part of being a nurturer is about being an emotion coach, being an emotionally literate emotion coach. And I cannot emphasize this enough. We need this more than ever now because we're going to get lots of kids who need that level of intervention, that kind of narrative, that kind of support in order to be able to cope with what they're feeling because sometimes it's going to be very overwhelming. So I'm flagging up the Emotion Coaching Resource Bank for parents, carers and professionals from Nurture UK and also the Essential Resilience and Wellbeing Toolkit for Early Years, which I have to say probably incorporates everything that I've talked about virtually today. Um, and there are many, many resources in there, particularly around emotion coaching, understanding anxiety and how to help children self-soothe. So a huge number of resources. So please have a look at it. You do not have to recreate this yourself. So in essence, what it includes, that particular publication, are all of these skills, training and therapeutic techniques for anxiety. So deep breathing, mindfulness, breathing exercises, noticing, grounding, muscle relaxation, systematic desensitization. So the anxiety ladder, for example, activity scheduling, the cognitive restructuring I talked about earlier with reference to CBT. Um, I won't go into all of them. They're all there on that slide and, and you can reflect on them later. What I would say is that different strategies are effective for different people. The most effective for most of us 
in terms of becoming self-regulated and maintaining that and recovering from trauma is to relax, find an effective distraction or to exercise. So generally, those would include mindfulness for many of us, but not all. The ability to self-soothe, so self-soothing techniques, grounding techniques and visualization. So please, please do have a look at them. And I have put um, a session on YouTube, which is free CPD coffee time. I think it's the second one in the series on managing anxiety. And I go into these in far more detail. So do access that, please. So key takeaway messages from this essentially is that from my perspective, safety has to come first. We have to ensure that our children, young people feel safe before we attempt this um, catch-up situation where they've got to try and engage in cognitive learning, academic learning. Safety has to come first before they engage if we're going to ensure that recovery is really on track for them. And we need to notice, remember, that trauma outcomes will be different for all of us. There is going to be a continuum. There's going to be a variety of different responses and reactions to this whole experience. But notwithstanding that, every single one of our children will have experienced a higher level of anxiety wherever they are on that continuum. So there is a need for this level of nurture. Nurture structure and rebuilding relationships are going to be central and key to this whole process, that whole notion of reconnecting so that we can heal. So understanding and managing the outcomes of our own experiences are also essential if we're going to be able to help children co-regulate. And we need to be very clear and careful about re-traumatizing children by focusing on the negatives and sharing these in too much detail or on too many occasions. At the extreme end, we need to make sure that the bespoke element is there for children who've experienced a very difficult time. But in the main, we need to actually highlight the things that have worked, that have been special and valuable, the things that we're looking forward to now. So living in the moment, okay? Um, I also think embedding the four trauma recovery steps in your recovery plan for the school needs to be really, really made explicit. And starting with what helped us to cope in lockdown and building on this is key to that. Highlighting the fact we can be physically distant but still emotionally connected to each other. There are ways in which we can still ensure that children know that we love them, that we want to nurture them, that we're there for them, that we'll keep them safe without actually hugging, without actually being physically right next to them. We can still do that. And we must make sure, we must make sure that the most vulnerable get the right support at the outset. So essentially we need to do it differently, some of us. Um, Those of us who have held on to the old behaviourist approaches, which never really worked, actually, Um, uh, they worked short time, I think, for some people, this notion of rewards and sanctions. But we, you know, we know so much more now. We know ever so much more about the neuroscience, how the brain works, the impact on behaviour and learning, that I think that there is no way that any of us can ever hold on to these behaviourist approaches. These need to be replaced now across the board in all our schools, in every classroom context, in every learning context, by trauma-sensitive classrooms and practice, and this notion of nurture for all. So finally, final takeaway point really is um, it's not such a big ask if you know that the resources are out there now and you can access them. So thank you very, very much for listening to this, and I hope that it's been useful to you all Day and that there are things that you can take away that will really make a difference now. Thank you, Tina. 
You've given us an absolute treasure trove of ideas. There is something there for everyone. There is something there for every teacher and for every child. Let's hope that our teachers can build the bridges using these wonderful resources that will restore our children as active learners, not just peripheral participants standing on the sidelines in fear, watching the learning of others. I want to underscore just one of your points, which is about the laminate. Can I just tell everyone that in those nurture resources, I've never seen laminate like it. And as Tina said, in this time of lockdown, in this time of pandemic, everything needs wiping down. Well, it's wonderful. And the Hinton House materials Tina's drawn your attention to all have downloadable worksheets. Again, easily disposable once the child has worked with them. These really are a perfect set of resources for a time of unimaginable crisis. Let's all work together to bring about recovery in our children. Thank you for your time in listening to this podcast, another in the series presented to you by Evidence for Learning. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about the Recovery Curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com. And the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Recovery Curriculum and Learning Shared web pages. You can search for Recovery Curriculum as a group inside Facebook. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.